The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, July 10th, 2019 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Alex Acosta defended his non-prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein in a press conference. Acosta, 11 years ago as U.S. attorney, only sought a sentence of 13 months imprisonment, which included work release six days a week in exchange for Epstein pleading guilty to sexually assaulting numerous young women and children. The labor secretary used his press conference to say many different versions of this answer. There was value to getting a guilty plea and having him register. Acosta is an original member of Trump's cabinet, a collection, perhaps not surprisingly, of bad actors on women's issues. Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, had a lifetime rating of zero from Planned Parenthood. While a senator, he voted against the 2014 reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. He voted to block the Military Justice Improvement Act. And he originally said it was unclear if grabbing a woman by the pussy was sexual assault. Though, thankfully, he cleared that up under oath when questioned by Senator Pat Leahy. Is grabbing a woman by her genitals without consent, is that sexual assault? Clearly, it would be. The confusion about the question was a hypothetical question, and it it related to what was said on the tape. I did not remember at the time whether uh, this was suggested to be an unaccepted, uh, unwanted okay, well, that would certainly um, uh, de- meet the definition. Uh, if that's what the tape said, then that would be. The Trump cabinet also features Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who as governor of Texas supported legislation that forced government mandated ultrasounds on women seeking abortions. Rick Perry also approved huge funding cuts to women's health programs. That forced more than 70% of women's health centers in Texas to shut their doors. He also opposed a prison rape mandate. He opposed a mandate. He forewent federal fundings rather than comply with keeping Texas prisons rape-free. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo right now is trying to redefine human rights back to a pre-1948 definition. Why this matters is, well, in the words of the New Yorker's Masha Gessen, in the interpretation promoted by Pompeo, women's rights or LGBT rights are somehow additional to basic human rights. They're ad hoc rights. They're not the unalienable rights that Pompeo talks about, Gessen says. They become, quite logically alienable rights. Trump's original Homeland Security head, who was then promoted to chief of staff, John Kelly, acknowledges he mishandled evidence that his top deputy, Rob Porter, had physically abused his ex-wives. Before news of that physical abuse broke, Kelly received notice from the FBI that some form of abuse had taken place. He was incurious. After reports of Porter striking these women came to light, he praised Porter, who was allowed to come back to work for a day or two after pictures of his first wife with a black eye surfaced. Then we come to Trump's original Secretary of Small Business Administration, Linda McMahon. Her professional qualifications was that she ran the World Wrestling Enterprise, which is without exaggeration, the single biggest purveyor of images of violence and degradation against women outside the porn industry. Here is her husband, Vince McMahon, playing his wrestling character, Vince McMahon, punishing a female wrestler who got out of line. 
you're sorry, get on your hands and knees like a dog. Oh, for God's sakes. You've got to be kidding me. Get on your hands and knees like a dog, okay? That's it. Personally, I love yeah, submissive women. Crawl around like a dog. You're sorry. Speak, Trish. Speak. Damn it, bark like a dog. <laughs> no, that's not what you said. Bark like a dog. Come on, tell me you're sorry. <laughs> Get up. You disgust me. Take your clothes off. Let's not forget Patrick Shanahan who after General Mattis quit, acted as Secretary of Defense for over a year. Shanahan helped shield his son from prosecution after the son took a baseball bat to the head of his mother, causing her hospitalization. He now says that he regrets describing his son's act as one of self-defense, which was justified at the time, Shanahan argued, because the mother, quote, had harassed him for nearly three hours before the incident, the incident being the baseball bat attack. None of the members of the Trump cabinet are known to be in favor of legal abortion rights. Some, like current acting Defense Secretary Mark Esper, may be. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin may be. We don't know. Mnuchin's greatest contribution to womankind thus far has been keeping Harriet Tubman off the $10 bill. Elaine Chao may be in favor of abortion. She's silent on the issue. Her husband, Mitch McConnell, is not. Of course, judging a person by their spouse is unfair. Otherwise, Steve Mnuchin's wife, Louise Linton, might have some splaining to do. The misdeeds among the upper staff run from insensitivity to indifference to malpractice. This isn't a collection of powerful people that I've tried to put to an impossible purity test. I'm not demanding that everyone, I'm not demanding that anyone actually supports a woman's right to have an abortion based on her desire to have an abortion, which I think should be the standard. But George W. Bush's White House, George H.W. Bush's White House, Ronald Reagan's White House, hell, probably Calvin Coolidge's White House, did not feature a collection of officials so out of step with the standards of their time in terms of decent treatment of women. Again, I'm not trying to put my finger on the scale by applying things to Obama's White House, right? That would be unfair. Of course, we should note that none of the presidents I've named have multiple credible allegations of sexual assault against them. So I'm going to say that what we're seeing now may not be a coincidence. On the show today, I spiel about equal pay in the Women's World Cup. I am for it but that doesn't mean there haven't been many, many, many a bad argument in support of, I suppose, my position. But first, there are a lot of reasons why people are Democratic or people are Republican, but I'll tell you a giant one, which we know is true, but until now, we may not have known how true it is. Will Wilkinson of the Niskanen Center has done a study on the urban versus, really, the everything but urban divide, and it is powerful. Will Wilkinson, up next. A new research paper by the Niskanen Center. Okay, I know you're saying that is the least hooky phrase ever to start an interview. But no, I'm telling you, it's fascinating. Because what it's about is a fundamental truth of American life that possibly explains so much more than we ever gave it credit for. The name of the paper is The Density Divide, Urbanization, Polarization, and Populist Backlash. The author of that paper is the vice president for research at the Niskanen Center, Will Wilkinson. Hello, Will. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. You're an Iowan. Why should we believe you? Uh, 
because I know it from both sides. Yeah? Yeah, I live in Iowa. I grew up in Iowa, uh, but I, you know, I've lived in D.C. I've lived in Houston, so I've uh, seen the density and I've seen the sparseness. So I think that in general, uh, most people in America know that the rural parts of America, they in general vote one way. And the urban parts of America, they in general vote the other way. But it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. They essentially have totally different worldviews, which, if anything else, explains their voting. And then you lay onto it some overlays of the fact that our political system does favor the rural and that the way we're divided actually has a little bit of a snowball effect. So I don't want to overstate it, but how big would you say is this rural and urban divide and how much does it explain? It's pretty big. The division has become more stark over time. So our politics, our electorate is at this point, relatively cleanly sorted or polarized on population density. And it's gotten to the point that there's no longer any such thing as a Republican city. There's a really tight and increasingly tight relationship between vote share and population density. So if you were to imagine that you know the streets were painted like electoral maps that you see on the news, you know, more blue for more Democratic, more red for more Republican, uh, you know, if that were the case, if you were to, you know, get in your car at the densest part of, you know, the downtown of just about any American city, could be small, could be medium, could be large, just, just about anywhere, and you were to head out toward the city limits, toward the country, you'd drive from deep Democratic blue to suburban purple, which shades into, you know, red around the outer suburbs and exurbs, and then you'd be right into deep rural Republican red. And the consistency of that pattern is one of the you know, most striking things. You see it everywhere, this relationship between population density and party vote share. It, it's just, it happens in small towns, it happens in big towns. So it's not that there are red states or blue states or even red counties and blue counties. There's just red population densities and blue population densities. So no Republican cities, not even Casper, Wyoming, or does that not count as a city? Uh, you know, it's you know that maybe overstates it uh, a, a little. But even if you look in the paper, I mentioned my hometown, Marshalltown, Iowa, uh, which is right in the central part of Iowa, a really agricultural region. And Marshalltown's only got twenty-seven thousand people in it. But if you go to the densest part of the town, Hillary Clinton won seventy percent of the vote. And as you move outward, uh, it gets a little less dense. It becomes more Republican. Um, and, you know, Hillary Clinton won Marshalltown, but it didn't, but she didn't win Marshall County. Right? And that kind of pattern just repeats everywhere. It's almost fractal. If you just kind of keep digging in, you see it at a deeper and deeper level. And is it is it about the density per se? I mean, I don't want to be cliche. It does seem that there are some chicken and egg problems or issues. Is it that once Democrats leave 
All that's left is the people with the uh, con- Republican or conservatives way of looking at it. Is it that so it, once you have so many people on top of each other, they tend to become more open minded about those people? Is it that the other way that maybe Republicans or conservative minded people retreat? I mean, you deal with all this in your paper, even things like the amount of services that an urban dweller might expect does correlate more with liberalism. But what's the best way to look at it, do you think? Well, the hypothesis that I present in the paper is that this division is, you know, what social scientists call uh, a selection effect more than a a treatment effect. So it's Mm -hmm. not that like living in a city makes you democratic or living in the country makes you Republican. Um, It's that people who are inclined to be Democrats are more likely to move to cities and people who are averse to uh, urban density and diversity are the people who don't move towards cities over time. So the overarching framework of the paper is to look at polarization and the rise of populism as a you know pretty surprising unintended consequence of decades and decades of urbanization, um, the the transition of the population from the countryside to the city, and it's easy to underestimate what a transformative force urbanization has been. It just changes everything about societies over time. Um, so, d- for instance, in you know in 1850, agricultural employment was around 70 percent, and in 2012, it was 1.5 percent. Right, and that that that's just this huge change in the economy that corresponds to these huge changes in patterns of settlement. So in the early 1800s, there was you know, no American city that had more than 100,000 people. By 1950, there were 150 cities that were bigger than 100,000. And uh, by 2017, there were 352. And those contain more than 85% of the population. So there's been this gigantic glacial movement of people towards the city. Mm-hmm. But that has a dramatic effect over time. That can separate the population as some people are more inclined to respond to the incentives that draw people into cities, and the people least inclined to respond to those incentives tend to stay behind. And if there are traits that predict whether you're going to be a lever or a stayer, uh, and those correlate with the things that make us likely to vote Democrat or Republican, then you're just going to separate the entire national population geographically in terms of the traits that predict how you're going to vote. So you talk about those famous big five personality traits, the ocean traits, and openness correlates to more liberalism and openness to experience. It is more characteristic of the urban environment. And are you also saying that someone who's more open is more apt to move, period? They are. So um, as you mentioned, like there's a, a model that personality psychologists use to you know, try to understand individual personality. There's five major traits, and two of those correspond to um, whether you're going to be socially liberal or socially conservative. It doesn't tell you anything about your sort of economic opinions, interestingly enough. Um, And the strongest personality dimension correlated with liberalism or conservative on socialism is openness to experience. And it 
actually predicts your likelihood of moving or migrating in the first place. Uh, people who are high in openness, um, what that means is you're curious. You like new things. If you're higher in openness, you're more likely to you know want to try a new cuisine or visit a different country that you've never been to before, um, be around people uh, with different backgrounds. If you're lower in openness, you have a taste for familiarity, um, for the kind of comfort of tradition and sameness. And one of the implications of that is that lower openness people are less likely to want to move and they're less likely to move. And over decades and decades and millions and millions of moves toward the city, even these small differences can uh, add up to a big distinction over time and separate the population on those traits. It wasn't always the case, though, in America that the rural was more conservative and that the urban was necessarily more liberal. I mean, there was this strong tradition of rural liberalism and prairie populism and fighting Bob LaFollette in uh, Wisconsin. And by the uh, other on the other hand, there was also a strong tradition of, you know, some fairly strong Republican machines in urban centers. So why has that changed over the years? That is a good question. It's it's thorny. Um, here in Iowa, uh, where I am, uh, there is a you know strong tradition of uh, sort of, I don't know what you'd want to call them, a little bit more collectivistic uh, farmers' parties. Like uh, up in Minnesota – the Democratic Party is still called, you know, like the Farmer and Laborer Party or something like that. The DFL, yes, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that has to do with this ethos of mutual help in rural communities. Like if, you know, your neighbor gets sick, everybody's going to need to come and help them bring in the crops or you all get together to raise barn. Uh, and, and so there was this, you know, very strong cooperative pro-social ethos in, in lots of rural places that tended to predict a kind of bigger government social insurance attitude toward government. But that has really, really dwindled over time as the agricultural economy has basically bottomed out. I mean, agricultural productivity is higher than it's ever been, but agricultural employment is lower than it's ever been. So there's just very, very few people who are actually employed in that sector. So if you still live in Iowa, um, you're not a farmer. Um, it's very unlikely. Um, and that ethos doesn't really persist in the politics in the same way. How much does the ideological sorting of the parties have to say or the impact it has in all of this? Because let's say all this stuff was going on with density and urbanization. Maybe we wouldn't be as polarized because it wouldn't be as neat if every Democrat wasn't a liberal and every Republican wasn't a conservative. Yeah, I mean, the sorting of the parties on ideology is really fairly recent, right? It used to be the case that it was all kind of mixed up. Uh, you had a lot of conservative Democrats and a lot of liberal Republicans, but that's not the case anymore. One of the main you know, complexifying, is that a word? Complexifying? <laughs> complexifying factors, uh, you know, in the history of the Democratic Party was, you know, just the strong loyalty of Southern whites to the Democratic Party. Uh, that was a pretty conservative group of voters. After the Civil Rights Act in 1965, there was this, you know, sort of long shift of 
of, of white Southern voters toward the Republican Party. And that started to sort the parties a little bit more neatly on conservative versus liberal ideology over time. And that sorting wasn't really complete until the 90s. And even then, you still had some cross-mix in terms of liberalism and conservatism between the parties. Um, so in northern industrial cities, the connection, the, you know, the deep connection between um, unions, labor unions, and the Democratic Party created a large base of white working class voters in, in addition to, you know, non-white working class voters who had a deep allegiance to the Democratic Party. As unionization declined over time, those bonds weakened. Um, party affiliation is pretty sticky over generations. If you're, you know, dad worked at the steel mill and was a member of the union and therefore a Democrat, you were likely to be a Democrat too. But those those bonds weaken over time. And a lot of those working class uh, white Americans are dispositionally conservative. And one of the things that, you know, pundits like us, you know, like, like tend to overlook is that most people aren't very engaged in politics. Most voters don't pay very much attention. They don't know the name of their governor. They don't know the, you know, positions of the you know, two parties. They don't really know which party stands for what. They just know what party represents people like them. Um, and they figure that out through very kind of brute social cues. And it turns out one of the things that I go through in my paper, and this is, I think, one of the most depressing things in the world, a lot of lower engagement white Democrats who are fairly dispositionally socially conservative just really didn't have a clear idea of how the parties aligned on race mm -hmm. and civil rights. When Barack Obama became president, that sent a really clear cue. There's a black Democrat in the White House. Oh, so that's the party for black people. That's the civil rights party. Maybe it's not for me. And you saw a huge exodus, maybe not huge, but very significant uh, movement of white working class voters who didn't go to college out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. And the thing that moved them was just the cue of Obama's race. And that sorted the parties more, more, more cleanly on ideology as well and on these dispositions. All right. Will Wilkinson is the vice president for research at the Niskanen Center. His paper, The Density Divide, Urbanization, Polarization, and Populist Backlash, explains a lot. Thanks, Will. Thanks so much for having me on. And now the spiel. Canyon of Heroes, Lower Manhattan. The confetti and ticker tape rained down today on the U.S. women's national team, and so did a by now familiar cheer. In fact, at one point, New York's first lady, Charlene McRae, heard equal pay and thought USA. Not paying women athletes as much as male athletes just because they are women is as antiquated as the ticker tape that these women were plucking out of their hair. It's especially true for this team, which defended their title with such a compelling combination of panache and grit. They stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best in the world and dribbled around them, passed over them, and shot through them. How could it be then? 
that America, at the forefront of encouraging its girls to play, is so behind the times in giving their women equal pay. As Megan Rapino, the star of the U.S. national team and one of the players who's been most vocal in agitating and suing for equal pay, told the crowd today. There's been so much contention in these last years. I've been a victim of that. I've been a perpetrator of that. With our fight with the Federation, sorry for some of the things I said. Not all of the things. But it's time to come together. This conversation is at the next step. We have to collaborate. It takes everybody. Who could disagree that these women deserve the riches that are coming their way in terms of pay, which is about a quarter of a million dollars from the U.S. Soccer Federation, and endorsements? By the way, the quarter of a million is roughly commensurate with what members of the U.S. men's national team will be paid by the very same federation this year. The women are, as far as we know, getting roughly equal pay. I am not against equal pay, especially for equal generation of revenue. And all the evidence is that these women have generated a bit more revenue than those men over the last three years for which there are complete figures. Of course, over the last four years from which there are complete figures, the men brought in almost $11 million more. Turns out where you start the clock in a sport dominated by quadrennial World Cups is enormously determinative of the financial picture. Also important is the fact that the men missed the World Cup. Had they made it, bringing along all the attendant revenue, the argument over equal pay would be, well, a lot less clear. The women would be demanding equal pay, having generated far less revenue. So this means this argument for equal pay rests on this specific set of circumstances. The women are the best in the world, and the men didn't even make the World Cup. This is why a lot of the arguments for equal pay have been driving me a little bit mad. It's not because I am against equal pay. Why would I be against equal pay? It's that there have been so many poor arguments for it, which have gone uncorrected, largely uncorrected in the media. I can't quote the whole media. I'll just quote my little slice of the media, the two Slate podcasts other than my own that are closest to my heart. First, What Next had the soccer journalist Nancy Armour of USA Today on their show. I have heard people basically saying there's no reason for the women's team to be treated the same way the men's team is treated. Can you just articulate really clearly what that argument is? Well, I don't think that there is an argument to be made for that. Um, But there will be people who will say, the men's World Cup brings in more money. The men's games are better attended. They get higher ratings. Basically, that they generate more revenue. Yes, there are those who say it. On Hang Up and Listen, Caitlin Murray of The Guardian was asked about the reaction to her piece comparing bonuses that the women got for advancing to the group stage to the bonuses that the men would have gotten. And then there's this whole other contingent that notably was all men. I didn't see any women in this contingent who said, well, what about the revenues that the men bring in or men's soccer is just more entertaining? It's more popular. A lot of people wanted to focus on the revenues, which, you know, that's a whole separate issue. Well, I am a man, so I guess I'm into beef jerky, monster trucks and revenue. Listen, I am not suggesting you pay me more heed than Caitlin Murray, just equal heed. Murray wrote 26 articles over 32 days of the World Cup. She's a really good journalist. I am not criticizing her. But her most quoted tweet was this from a few weeks ago. 
The U.S. women's national team players have made around $90,000 so far in World Cup bonuses for this cycle. But if they got the same bonuses the U.S. men's national team are entitled to, they each would have gotten closer to $550,000. Okay, that seems unequal. Of course, unsaid in that tweet is the fact that the women make a base salary of $100,000 and the men only make a bonus. The article said that, but the tweet didn't. Tweets aren't articles, but the tweet got a lot of attention. We should also point out this. Men's soccer is played by about 300 million males in the world, according to FIFA. Women's soccer is played by about 30 million females. More boys than girls play soccer in American high schools. It's a little under 400,000 girls. It's about 450,000 boys. On the youth level, it's a 52-48 split, male more than female. The point of all these stats is this. For a U.S. men's team to advance to the same stage of the World Cup as a U.S. women's team would be a much bigger accomplishment. Not because I'm sexist, just because of the level of competition. The Men's World Cup is a larger tournament, which generates 10 times the revenue. But put that aside, American soccer-playing men are about 1% of the world's male soccer-playing population. Whereas U.S. women make up a much larger part of the entire soccer-playing population. 10 times the amount, I would say. To compare the relative success per rounds is not to compare like to like. Another point is that these pay disparities are based on contracts that are negotiated with the relative chances of success in mind. I mean, if the U.S. men walked into their negotiation, they said, here should be our pay structure. Zero dollars unless we win the World Cup and then we get $20 million each. I'm sure the Federation would go for it. And then... You could say after the women won the World Cup, oh my God, the men would have been paid 80 times as much, except the men aren't winning the World Cup. The men weren't even getting into the knockout round. They didn't even get into the World Cup. In real life, the women are getting $250,000, which maybe could be more, but isn't horrible. And isn't just, it's just not comparable to the men. The best player on the men's team is Christian Pulisic. He was recently bought, it's called Transfer Fees in Soccer, by Chelsea, one of the richest clubs in the world, for $73 million. That's not his personal salary. That will maybe be $10 million. We don't know what it is. But $73 million is Chelsea's estimation of the worth of this guy. If uh, Pulisic plays four years for the Blues, it'll work out to about half a million dollars per game. The reason I bring it up is to point out that to ask him to play for the U.S. national team is to ask an asset, a human being, yes, but also a monetary asset, to take time away from his club, risk his health, contribute his labor. Labor is what we're talking about, after all. The price on that is higher, intrinsically higher, as the market has stated, than a player on the women's team who has no one else vying for her services at that level. Another really bad argument was this one tweeted by New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand after the U.S. team just crushed Thailand. Here's the tweet. Here's the idea. If you win 13 to 0, the most goals for a single game in World Cup history, you should be paid at least equally to the men's team. Congratulations, hashtag US Women's National Team. Kirsten Gillibrand, thereby supplying a strong argument for the Thai women's national team to never have anything close to pay equity to their men's side. The quality of the women's team or the margin of victory makes no sense as a standard for pay. If anything, it's an indictment of the quality of play in the Women's World Cup as a whole. The Men's World Cup has been held 18 times, the women's eight, 
And in those more than twice as many times, the most a men's team has ever lost is nine to nothing. It was Zaire to Yugoslavia in 1974. Good to know it will never happen again since there is no Zaire and there is no Yugoslavia. Listen, if the 57,000 people who hit like on that Gillibrand tweet actually attended a professional women's soccer game this year, that would double the yearly attendance for the majority of the teams in the women's professional league. Of course, 57,000 people vote for Kirsten Gillibrand in Iowa. She'll probably become the Democratic frontrunner. None of those things are going to happen. Arguments like that, I think of it as illogical pandering. The women deserve more money because they're so much better than the other teams they play against. Makes no sense. Or saying they deserve money because at hypothetical levels of success, the men would make more once you ignore their base salary. That makes no sense. Or that they deserve more because in certain years, years where the men do horribly, they make slightly more money, but you have to ignore all the other years when they don't. That makes no sense. In general, asking someone else to pay someone else more money is not heroism. A lot of these arguments are not good arguments. Frustratingly, these are also some of the most common arguments. The good news is, that the women are more likely to get more money because they're captivating, they're lovable, they're great at soccer, and their partners across the negotiating table know this. If U.S. soccer wanted to be total jerks, they could probably stick to the terms of the collective bargaining agreement because the contract is a contract after all, and it is what the women agree to. But today, the U.S. soccer president, Carlos Cordero, indicated that the women would be getting a bump, thus earning the endorsement of Megan Rapino at today's celebration. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick my neck out there a little bit. I'm gonna endorse Carlos. I think he's with us. I think he's on the right side of things. I think he's gonna make things right. Which is good. Which is why this entire issue and the coverage of it can be seen as a positive. The negative would be if there were little girls who were watching, or really anyone watching, who took away the message that soccer is unfair to their heroes, the powerful are discriminating against women because they can, because they have no good reason, because their reasons are entirely separate from normal business considerations like supply and demand, revenue and profit, marginal productivity theory. If this is all framed as a depressing story of the oppressed without at least an acknowledgement of the complexities, that would be a shame, and the media perpetuating that idea would deserve criticism. If, however, these entire issues are regarded as one where workers, women workers, seize the moment, leverage their advantage, garnered public support, and swayed the boss man, well, that's good. In other words, the equal pay chance can either be interpreted as a bit of scorn, attempting to shame the powerful, or they could be interpreted as a promise achieved. I would go with the more positive interpretation, and I believe that they will win. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé produces The Gist with Daniel Schrader, or maybe it's Daniel Schrader with Pierre Bien-Aimé. It's hard to know. I do know this. They're both urban sophisticates with the rustic appeal of the everyman. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She found the suburbs to be soul-crushing and stultifying, but if you have a dog, it's good to go back and have a backyard to play in. Today on What Next, the NPR news show that posts every day at 6 a.m. The heart is a lonely hunter, but Hunter Biden is a bit of a lonely heart. The New Yorker's Adam Entis on his story of the travails of the son of the former vice president. The gist 
You know, if Invisibilia reached their 1,278th episode, you know they would be rich. You just know it. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.